You're listening to The Best in Wealth Podcast, episode number 62. This is The Best in Wealth Podcast, a show for successful family stewards who want real answers about wealth and investing so we can feel secure about our family's future. At The Best in Wealth Podcast, we think differently about wealth and investing. You should too. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Best in Wealth Podcast. I am Scott Wellens, and I am your host. And this is a show dedicated to helping real people. Guess what? That's you. Build real wealth so together we can take family stewardship to the next level. I am a certified financial planner, an educator, and a wealth advisor. And today's episode is... It's time to make 2017 predictions. But before we get to the topic, I want to talk to you about some of my own predictions that do not have to do with the stock market or the economy. Here's my prediction. I'm going to lose 20 pounds in 2017. Here's the problem. Oh, and by the way, I call this the Jan 1 plan. And here is the problem. Every single December, I say, I'm going to lose 20 pounds and it's going to be the Jan 1 plan. However, I find myself spinning my stinking wheels every single year because it's time once again to lose 20 pounds in the Jan 1 plan. I don't know what it's going to take to break this streak I'm on of about 15 or 20 years having the Jan 1 plan. In fact, it's a big family joke every year around Christmas when I'm stuffing my face and say, it's January 1st, it is on, baby, because that's what I say. And really, if you listen to last January's episodes in 2016, you're going to hear the same stuff. But I think a lot of people can relate to what I'm talking about because setting goals and keeping goals are so difficult. Fortunately for me, I'm able to keep them when it comes to my finances. But when it comes to exercising and my weight, I'm a roller coaster ride. And I imagine some of you listening, because you're listening to a financial podcast, maybe you have some issues when it comes to keeping your financial goals in order and you have big aspirations at the beginning of the year to save more or finally get organized with all of your finances but then life gets in the way just like life gets in the way for me when it comes to my Jan 1 plan and I think last year right around March I lost the full 20 pounds But it's back, baby. It is back. Let's get to the topic of the day. It's time to make 2017 predictions. And I'm not talking about me making predictions. I'm talking about all the noise you hear when you turn on the radio, turn on the TV, and turn on the newspaper. Because The close of each calendar year brings with it the holidays, but as well a chance to look forward to the next year like I just talked about with my Jan 1 plan. 
But when it comes to the economy and the stock market in the coming weeks, investors are likely to be bombarded, you and me, with predictions about what the future and specifically next year may hold for our investments. And these outlooks are typically accompanied by recommended investment strategies and actions that are aimed at trying to avoid the next crisis or missing out on the next great opportunity. Nobody wants to miss out on the great opportunity. In fact, if you've listened to this show before, you know that in the last five years, I've been saving all of my magazines, my Kiplinger's magazines, my Money magazines, and Forbes magazines. And I'm doing this because I just received in the mail yesterday my new Kiplinger's magazine. Basically the the January 2017, I believe, issue. But within that, they have the annual forecasts on how the economy is going to do and how stocks are going to do. And I didn't read that one yet. But instead, I look back at my old magazines. And what did I find? January 2012, the annual forecast issue, five years ago today. And it in big, bold, yellow letters, 2012. And then right below that, on the cover of the magazine, where to invest now. So think about that for a second. It's 2012. It's December of 2012. You just got the January issue. The experts came out with this magazine with where to invest now because they always have some really smart person on the cover of some big mutual fund or hedge fund. And in this particular cover in uh, January of 2012, hedge fund manager Lauren Templeton is on the cover. And I didn't even read what her predictions were. However, I did open up to page 25 where the headline says, six stocks for the new year. So they picked stocks that they thought were going to perform well in the coming year or the coming years. So I'm not going to go through all of them, but the very first one that they picked was Chevron. They picked Chevron to be a great buy in 2012. So I thought it'd be prudent now that it's five years later, 2016, to look at it. I mean, they said Chevron was a great buy. If I had money in 2012 and I didn't know any better, I might start investing my money in Chevron. Why not? The experts told me that this was a great company to own. So what happened in the next five years when I look back at it? Well, Chevron, they averaged 5.56% per year since uh, December 1st, 2012 to December 1st, 2016. So what does that mean? Well, if you had $100,000 and invested in Chevron five years ago, you would have now $131,000. And you probably would have thought to yourself, man, that was a great pick. I'm glad I chose Chevron. My 100000 is now 131000 But guess what? We need to see if this was actually a good buy. And one of the things to do is to compare it against other large company stocks. So we use the S&P 500 to use it as a benchmark to see how Chevron did. So Chevron 
They did 5.56% for the year. How did the S&P 500 do? The average of the largest 500 companies in the United States. Well, they averaged 14.41% per year, looking back five years. Almost three times the, the percentage higher, which is crazy. And what does that mean to you in real dollars? Well, if you would invested $100,000 in the S&P 500 index. Well, five years later and and on December 1st, yesterday, your investment would now be worth $196,000, over $60,000 better than your original investment of Chevron. What does all this mean? Well, when you're faced with recommendations like this Chevron or anything that you're about to read, because you're going to read a bunch of stuff, it would be wise to remember that we, family stewards, investors, are way better served by sticking with the long-term plan rather than changing course in reaction to predictions and short-term calls. Because we're going to hear them all. We're going to hear that the market's going to tank in 2016 or the market's going to do really well. Or we're going to hear which companies you need to own next year. And I'm here to tell you that these experts, they don't always know what they're talking about. In fact, mostly they don't. Let's move on and I'll I'll give you an example and a quote uh, by Steve Forbes. I'll give you that in just a little bit. You know, because one doesn't typically see a forecast that ever says, Capital markets are expected to continue to function normally. Man, that's a boring headline. Or something like, it's unclear how unknown future events will impact prices. Another boring headline. Because predictions about future price movements come in all shapes and sizes, but most of them tempt the investor into playing a game of trying to outguess the market, just like you would have done if you would have bought Chevron. What didn't we know about Chevron five years ago? Well, we knew that there was a, a gluttony of oil, but we didn't know the vast amounts that the world actually had and that oil prices were going to completely tank. We had no idea. And incidentally, Chevron did quite well compared to a lot of the other oil companies in the last five years. I could have given a different one and it would have had a a way worse outcome. You're going to hear predictions though that might include things like this. We don't like energy stocks in 2017 or we expect the interest rate environment to remain challenging in the coming year. You see, bold predictions may peak interest for people. They do mine. I can't help it. It gets my emotions brewing. But the usefulness in application to an investment plan is way less clear. So Steve Forbes, who's the publisher of Forbes magazine, he once said, and I quote, you make more money selling advice than following it. It's one of the things we count on in the magazine business, along with the short memory of our readers. Doesn't that just say it all? Doesn't that just tell you what Money Magazine, Kiplinger's Magazine, Forbes Magazine... Any of the investment news channels you read, or I'm sorry, listen to, they 
are not out for your best interest in your portfolio. No way. They're making bold predictions so they can make money selling advice and getting after your emotions, period. You see, definitive recommendations attempting to identify value not currently reflected in the market prices may provide investors with a sense of confidence about the future. But how accurate do these predictions have to be in order to actually be useful? So consider a simple example where you may hear about a prediction that stocks are currently priced too high and now it's better to hold cash. So let's say that this particular prediction has a 50% chance of being accurate. Okay, that 50% is that stocks are going to underperform cash over some period of time. We don't know how long. We just read the article and we see that an expert, in quotes, said that it's better to hold cash. Does this mean that an investor has a 50% chance of being better off by selling the stocks and being in cash? Because what is crucial to remember is that any market timing decision, because that's what that is, is actually two decisions. If an investor decides to change their portfolio, selling the stocks in this case, they have to decide to get out of the market. That's one decision. They also must determine when to get back in. So if we assign a 50% probability of the investor getting each decision right, that would give them only a one in four chance of actually being better off overall. Think about that, friends. Think about the difficulty in timing any decision. You have to be right twice. So we can, even if we increase the chances of of you, for example, being right in a prediction to 70% for each decision, you have a 70% chance of your decision to be right. But now you have two decisions to make. At a 70% chance for each decision, the odds of them being better are still shy of 50%. They are no better than a coin flip, period. And you can apply the same logic to decisions within asset classes, such as whether to be currently invested in stocks only in the United States versus only having money in developed countries or emerging markets. And the lesson here is that the only guarantee for investors making market timing decisions is that they will incur additional transaction costs due to frequent buying and selling. What are those? Uh, what are all those transaction costs? They are ones we're aware of and ones we're not aware of. Because every time a trade is made, there is, of course, some sort of potential commission to be paid for just placing the trade itself. But there's also things like bid-ask spreads and taxes. Every time you make a move in the market, there is a tax consequence. So hear me again. The only guarantee you have from making market timing decisions is transaction costs. So now you have to overcome making two decisions plus the costs to actually get in and get out of the market because it's not free, people. The track record 
of professional money managers attempting to profit from mispricing also suggests that making frequent investment changes based on market calls may be more harmful than helpful. I want you to do some homework. I want you to Google SPIVA, S-P-I-V-A. It's S&P's scorecard from mid-year 2016 or look at all of 2015. And what it does is it highlights how managers have fared against a comparative S&P benchmark. How did they do versus their benchmark? Just like I showed you earlier or talked about Chevron versus the S&P. And the results that you will find are staggering. The majority of managers have underperformed over both short term and longer term. I mean, just when I look back 10 years and look at all large cap funds, 85% of fund managers underperform the market. Mid cap funds, 91% of fund managers could not beat their benchmark. And small caps, not any better. 90.75% of managers could not beat their benchmark. Why? Because it's so hard to make these predictions, when to get in and when to get out, and they have to try and recoup all of the expenses with the trading. It is staggering, people. So what do we do? What do we do with all of this knowledge? Well, rather than relying on forecasts that attempt to outgas market prices, these forecasts that we're going to hear over and over again for the next months, we can, investors, me and you, can instead rely on the power of the market as an effective information processing machine to help structure our investment portfolios, making sure that we are just investing up to our risk level, the risk level we're willing to take, the risk capacity, and whatever our goals are. And that's it. And then hold. Financial markets involve the interaction of millions of willing buyers and sellers. And the prices they set provide positive expected returns every single day. And while realized returns may end up being different than expected returns, any such difference is unknown and unpredictable in advance. So over the long haul, the best thing we can do is trust the markets and stay disciplined in being able to stay invested. That's what we need, people. Discipline. I talk about that over and over on this show. Just like I need to be disciplined when I lose my 20 pounds to then make sure I keep that off. We need to be disciplined investors day in and day out. So if you go to bestandwealth.com, you will find the article that I wrote out and am attaching to the show notes all about this podcast and I'm going to post a graph as well if you click on the link and it's going to show you a time horizon from 1970 through 2015 and it'll sample some some highlights of several bearish headlines over the same period and during that time period, if you would have reacted negatively to the headlines, you would have potentially missed out on substantial growth over the coming decades. In 1980, 
Business Week came out with their, and I think I did a whole podcast on this, cover story, the death of equities. You should now, you should no longer own stocks. It's a horrible game that you will play and you will lose your money. That was in 1980. And stocks have grown considerably with a few bumps in the road. But if you would have stayed invested, wow, you'd have realized some outstanding returns. What about the early 90s? Forbes magazine, completely bearish on America. And what happened? We went through a huge market rally. Money magazine, towards the end of the 90s. What did they say? Huge headline, sell stock now. If you would have done that, you would have missed the huge climb the next three or four years. And yeah, staying invested, you would have then entered the dot-com bubble. And if you would have been heavy into tech stocks, you'd have been screwed. But if you were completely diversified, yes, there would have been a few bumps in the road. But you would have overcome it and started to grow again. What happened in 2000, around 2010, the Wall Street Journal came out with this headline, Dow 5000, there is a case for it. If you would have read that article and got out of the market, you would have missed out on this bullish run we've been on for years and now the dow jones is not at 5000 it's knocking on the door of 20000 5 years later let's all right here say that we are going to be disciplined moving forward in our investments all the research says that we should so why aren't we As 2016 closes, it is natural to start thinking about what's gone well and what you may want to improve on next year, like my 20 pounds I need to lose. But within the context of your investment plan, it is so important to remember that we are likely better served by trusting our plan that we have in place and focusing on the things we can control. And what can we control? Being broadly diversified minimizing taxes, reducing costs, reducing turnovers, tilting our portfolio into higher expected returns like small and value and profitability. Those are the things we can do. Because people who make long-term investment strategies based on short-term noise and predictions are more than likely to be disappointed in the outcome. Because in the end, the future will remain full of uncertainty. History has shown us but through all of this uncertainty, markets have rewarded long-term investors who are able to stay the course. We need to trust the markets as hard as it is and as difficult as it is when we see the market going down a little bit or when we read um, in the newspaper horrible news about predictions that such and such U.S. or whatever country is going to go broke. What all of that stuff is, is noise. That's what it is. And if you have questions, I want you to email me, scott at bestandwealth.com. I also want you to go to bestandwealth.com so you can read the show notes and look at the graph that I was talking about too. And I hope that we all can make a commitment to stay disciplined in 2017 and moving forward. My time is up, people. You guys have an awesome week. 
and I'm gonna see you on the flip side. Bye bye, everyone. The Best in Wealth podcast is hosted by Scott Wellens. Scott Wellens is the principal at Fortress Planning Group. Fortress Planning Group is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities Act of Wisconsin in accordance with compliance with securities laws and regulations. Fortress Planning Group does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Best in Wealth podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.